Well, we are going to be in Lamentations today. Actually, we're going to start in Jeremiah. So if you open your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 1, that's uh, going to be the first verses we look at. It's going to take us a little while to get there, but we're going to be in Lamentations. It's, uh, it's a tiny book in the Old Testament. It's sandwiched in between Jeremiah and Ezekiel. It's five chapters long. It's a sort of a postscript to Jeremiah, so that's why we're going to start in Jeremiah today. Um, but we'll get to Lamentations. It's a very neglected book. Before I started this study, uh, personally, I'd never been a part of a Bible study on Lamentations. I'd never read a book about it. I'd never heard a sermon about it. And you're probably in the same boat as me. I had memorized two verses from Lamentations, Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, uh, because those are the most hopeful verses in the book. They're the verses that, that the, the great hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, is based on those verses. But beyond that, my exposure to this book has been very minimal. It's a neglected book. Not just by me, but by many, many people. Now, why? Uh, you could argue it's neglected because it's just so tiny. It's sandwiched in between these big books of Jer- uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. gets overshadowed. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of short books we do pay attention to. Jonah's only four chapters long. Everybody knows about Jonah. So why don't we study Lamentations? I think the answer is pretty simple. It's because Lamentations is just so darn sad. It's in the title, Lamentations. It's laments. It's people lamenting. It's just full of sadness. Lamentations is a book of five poems that express the pain of living in the aftermath of a great tragedy. Why would anybody want to read those? Nobody wants to feel sad. At risk of stating the obvious, sadness is not fun. We don't want to feel sad. And and, and generally, people don't like to spend time with people who are sad. right? But that's what this book is. It's spending time with people who are sad. It's five poems written by people in heartbreaking distress. How sad they are in the aftermath of a great tragedy. And, And in general, we don't like that. We don't like to feel sad. We don't like to be with people who are sad. And so why would we spend a couple months studying this book? It doesn't sound like a lot of fun. Uh, And you know, besides just being sad, Lamentations is disturbing. It's disturbing. It disturbs us. It takes us out of our comfortable bubbles. It forces us to look at how terrible life really can be. It's it's sort of like going to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., Now, when my family went on vacation to Washington, D.C. this year, we did not go to the Holocaust Museum because we didn't want to ruin our family vacation. We were having fun. This was a fun trip. We didn't want to go to the Holocaust Museum. We go to fun places. You can go into the Holocaust Museum smiling, but you do not come out smiling. You come out disturbed. Your world's rocked. You're silent. You're shocked at how bad people can be and how much suffering and evil exists in the world. And that's what happens when you read Lamentations. It's like a trip to the Holocaust Museum. It disturbs you. It shakes you out of your comfortable bubble, and it reminds you that there's great evil and suffering in this world. And so just like my family skipped the Holocaust Museum because we didn't want to ruin our fun vacation, many of us are tempted to skip Lamentations because we don't want to ruin our fun, put-together lives. But I'm asking you to spend the next month and a half or so in this sad and disturbing book. Because we need this sad and disturbing book. 
for the world is a sad and disturbing place. I mean, yeah, the world is a wonderful place. Don't don't get me wrong. There's so many wonderful and beautiful and amazing things about life. The world is great, but it's also terrible. It's full of unspeakable tragedy and pain, and sooner or later, that tragedy hits home, and something happens in your life, and you experience trauma, and you can't run from the sadness anymore. And it's for those times that God has given us lamentations to help us in our sadness, to give us a voice for our sorrows and the sorrows we see all around us. It's to help us with our feelings as we live in this world of great evil and suffering and to help us equip others and to equip us to help others in their sadness and pain. So that's what we're going to do. And if you're willing, we're going to look at this book together and learn what God has to teach us. Now we're going to start in Jeremiah. Because the first thing we have to know is that Lamentations is sad for a reason. It's a sad and disturbing book because it's about something sad and disturbing that happened to the people of Jerusalem. That's the first thing we need to know today is that the Jewish people experienced a great tragedy. The Jewish people experienced a great tragedy. So we need to look at Jeremiah to get the context here. I'm going to read the first three verses in Jeremiah and try to place this in the story. Where are we in the biblical story? So Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, and until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. So he's given us the dates of his ministry. He's placing his ministry in the greater biblical story. He says he goes from the 13th year of Josiah until the captivity of Jerusalem. So where does that put us in the overall story of the Bible? Okay, so Bible story in a nutshell. Starts with creation. God made Adam and Eve in a perfect world. Everything was wonderful. Then came the fall. Adam and Eve sinned. Death entered the world. We're all condemned because of it. But God has a plan for redemption, and so he chose Abraham and his family to bring redemption to the world, and through Abraham and his son Isaac and his son Jacob and his 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel, God worked to bring redemption. So these these 12 sons go to Egypt. They end up enslaved there. They They have tons of kids, become a whole nation of people. They're in slavery in Egypt. God brings them out of slavery in Egypt, and he makes a covenant with them. He says, you will be my people, I will be your God, through you I will bless the world, and you just need to follow me. So if you stay faithful to me, I will bless you. But if you break the covenant, if you abandon me and worship other gods, I will curse you. And Israel says, sounds great, we're in, and they were a part of this covenant. So God let them enter the promised land, he gave them the land, he gave them a monarchy, King David was their ruler, He ruled wisely. He followed God with his whole heart. He loved the Lord, and they were blessed. But he was really the last good king. He was the first good king and the last good king. It was all downhill from there. David had descendants, and these kings were bad. They did not follow God. And because they broke the covenant, the curses of the covenant were hanging over them. God had said, I would curse you if you break the covenant, and they did. They broke the covenant. And so it was only a matter of time before God's punishment came for their disobedience. 
Now, Jeremiah picks, places his story now in the context of that story. He says he, he started prophesying in the 13th reign of King Josiah. So this is about 400 years after David. We're now at about 627 B.C. And then verse four says that, or sorry, verse three says that he ministered until the captivity of Jerusalem, which happened in 587 B.C. So Jeremiah is ministering. The story is happening between 627 B.C. and 587 B.C. So 40 years. For 40 years, Jeremiah is a prophet to Judah, and his unenviable ministry was to tell them. God is going to bring destruction on us all if you don't repent. That's the ministry God gives to Jeremiah in chapter 1. We'll pick it up in verse 13. This is God telling him, here's what your ministry is going to be like. Jeremiah 1.13. The word of the Lord came to me a second time saying, what do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. Then the Lord said to me, out of the north disaster shall be let loose upon all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I'm calling all the tribes of the kingdoms of the north, declares the Lord, and they shall come, and every one shall set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem, against all its walls, all around, against all the cities of Judah. And I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil and forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods and worshiped the works of their own hands. So he says there's this punishment coming from the north. That's where Babylon is from. He's saying there's going to be this army from the north, the Babylonian Empire, and they're going to come, they're going to destroy Jerusalem because they've worshipped other gods, they've broken the covenant, they've forsaken God. And God says to Jeremiah, here's your job, verse 17, but you dress yourself for work, arise and say to them everything I command you. Do not be dismayed by them, lest I dismay you before them. And behold, I make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar, a bronze, or in bronze walls, against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. So God says, here's your mission. The, the destruction is coming. You need to tell them, I'm going to put you against the whole country. Everyone's going to hate you. They're going to not like what you're saying. They're going to be against you, but I will make you a strong pillar. I'll make you a fortified city. You will stand up against them, and you'll be able to keep telling them this message and keep telling this message until the time comes for it to be fulfilled. And that's what he does for 40 years. For 40 years, Jeremiah is a prophet to Judah. The whole book of Jeremiah is just a record of this, of Jeremiah standing up and saying, you need to repent. God's going to bring the curses of the covenant on you because you've turned away from him. And everybody's saying, no, we don't think that's going to happen. Right? So they, they call Jeremiah a liar. They call him a traitor. Uh, they call him a false prophet. No one ever listens to his warnings. They say, we don't need to repent. Everything's fine the way it is. Nothing bad is ever going to happen. We have the temple of the Lord. There's no way anything bad could happen to us. But of course, it turns out that Jeremiah was right. Probably more right than he ever really wanted to be. Because the Babylonians came, and when they came, they captured the city, they destroyed the city, they brought heartbreaking devastation with them. So flip to the end of Jeremiah, chapter 52, and see how it all plays out. Jeremiah 52. Verse 1. It says, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. 
His mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna, different Jeremiah. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For because of the anger of the Lord, it came to a point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out from his presence. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon, and in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it, so the city was besieged till the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. So there's this huge famine because the army is encamped around here. They've, they've besieged the city. No one can get in. No one can get out. The food's run out. People are starving. Verse 7. Then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled and went out from the city by night by way of a gate between the two walls by the king's garden. And the Chaldeans were around the city, and they went in the direction of Arabah. Okay, so that's great. They make a breach the city, and all of the men of war leave. They run away bravely, right? Verse 8, but the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath, and he passed sentence on him. The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and also slaughtered all the officials of Judah at Riblah. He put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains, and the king of Babylon took him to Babylon and put him in prison till the day of his death. So the king's captured. Sons are killed, officials are killed, his eyes are put out. Then verse 12, we read about what happens to the city. In the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the king of the bodyguard, who served the king of Babylon, entered Jerusalem. And he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem, every great house he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the, all the walls around Jerusalem. And Nebuzaradan, the king of the guard, carried away captive some of the poorest of the people and the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon together with the rest of the artisans. But Nebuzaradan, the kingdom of, captain of the guard, left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. So in very cursory format, he just kind of goes through, here's what happened. Verse 13 says they burned the house of the Lord, so they destroyed the temple. Uh, the, the temple, this thing that was the, the heart of the city, the heart of the country, the heart of their religion, the fact that God was with them, the temple gets destroyed, burned to the ground. Burns the king's houses, he said, burns all the great houses, so there's all these fires going on in Jerusalem, just destroys the city. Verse 14 says he broke down the walls around the city, so this is total destruction, massive property loss, massive loss of life. Verse 15, most of the survivors get taken into captivity. Only some of the poorest are left to work the land. Now, it's, it's hard for us to comprehend what this is like. It's really abstract for us. It is literally ancient history. People we've never met, places we've never been. But this was devastating. This is a total tragedy. This is bigger than what we felt after 9-11. This is huge. The whole city destroyed. People slaughtered. The temple destroyed. There's one uh, Bible scholar named Christopher Wright who summarizes it really well. I'm going to read you a long quote from him. He says, This was unquestionably the most traumatic moment in the whole history of the Old Testament. 
Not only was there massive human suffering at every level of physical and emotional experience, not only the devastating demolition and incineration of their ancient and beautiful city, there was also the utter humiliation of their national pride as a small but independent nation that had a history in the land stretching back to Joshua. And along with that went the devastating undermining of all they had thought was theologically guaranteed, the Davidic monarchy, the city of Zion, and the very temple of their omnipotent God. Or was he? All gone. What possible future could there be, and how could the present ever be endured? It was a total tragedy. What comes next after something like this? What do you do next? You got people dying of starvation in a two-year famine brought on by a siege. You've got an invading army that comes in and kills and burns and destroys everything. The city's in ruins. Your possessions are gone. Some, if not all, of your loved ones have been killed. And God, far from fighting for you, seems to be nowhere to be found. What happens next? Well, what happens next is that God inspires Jeremiah to write five poems about this tragedy. And those poems become the book of Lamentations. So in the aftermath of the greatest tragedy the Jewish people had experienced up to that point, what God does is he inspires poems. He tells Jeremiah, give these poems to the people. So just think about how weird that is, how unexpected that is. Is that what you think you need after a great tragedy? When your dad dies, or you hear the cancer diagnosis, or you hear about another school shooting that's happened, is your first thought, boy, I really wish I had a small book of poetry. That's what I need right now. That's what God gives his people. In the hour of their greatest need, after the greatest tragedy in the history of the people, God says, in effect, here are five poems, read these, they will help you. So the Jewish people experienced a great tragedy, and in response to that tragedy, God gave them poems. Gave them poems. That is not what we expect not what we think we need. In fact, for a certain group of people, that sounds like the worst thing you could do for them. Poetry. Ugh. Especially analytically minded people. And generally, people like me who are analytically minded hate poetry. Right? You know my story. I'm, I used to be an engineer. I'm an analytical guy. You know, I preach in an analytical way, you know, very clear, logical structure and And I'm guessing by the fact that you guys keep coming back week after week, that kind of resonates with you. You get that, right? You like that sort of structure and clarity and precision. And I know know I'm not describing everybody. Not everybody's the same here. Uh, But our congregation, I think, has that definite analytical bent to it. We're inclined that way. And in general, people like that don't like poetry. Because it's so subjective. It's so imprecise. It's not logical. It appeals to the emotions rather than the intellect. Poetry's messy. You can't nail it down into a formula. For some people, it's not what you want on an ordinary day, not part of your regular diet, and so it's certainly not what you want in the aftermath of a tragedy. In the aftermath of a tragedy, an analytical person says, I want some answers 
from God. I want you to explain to me how did this happen? Uh, you know, spell it out for me, step by step. What can I do to make sure this doesn't happen again? And it's probably true of all of us, not just analytically minded people. When bad things happen, we want answers. We want clarity, precision. But that is not what God did in this case. After the worst tragedy in the history of the Jewish people up to that point, God does not give a clear and logical defense of his actions. He does not give them answers. He gives them poems. Which tells me there is value in poetry. That God thinks it's important. He thinks it's important enough that we should not neglect it. We should not despise it, but we should seek to understand it. And be blessed through our study of it. So that's what we're going to try to do. We're going to try to view these poems and lamentations as a gift from God to help us in our time of need. Now in saying all this, maybe if you've started looking at lamentations yourself, you might be scratching your head a little bit and saying, uh, you keep calling these poems. They don't look like poems. How do I know it's a poem? Nothing rhymes, Dan. Nothing rhymes here. How is this a poem? Uh, and you're right, it does not rhyme, but it is still poetry. And it's, it's easier to see in the original language of Hebrew in which these poems were written. Because each of these chapters in the Book of Lamentations is an acrostic poem. Uh, so an acrostic is a poem where you like, have a phrase or a word kind of along the side, and, and you try to spell that out by, by giving uh, that word or that letter to start each line. Uh, so like uh, Mother's Day, maybe, you know, maybe I have the, the kids in class, you're like, let's make an acrostic poem uh, that spells out mom, right? So you have M-O-M, and you say something like, mom is great. Our mom is awesome. Many blessings, mom, right? M-O-M. Didn't say it was good poetry, but uh, that's what an acrostic does, okay? And each one of these chapters in Lamentations is an acrostic poem, and it's based on the alphabet. So it's not spelling out a word, it's just working through every letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, 22 verses, um, with some variations on that in each of these chapters. So acrostics can be simple, they can be complicated. Lamentations is like genius-level acrostic poetry. So let me explain some of what's going on here that we just can't see when we read it in English, but it's definitely there in Hebrew. So you notice, if you look, chapter 1 has 22 verses. Chapter 2 has 22 verses. Chapter 3 has 66. Chapter 4 is back to 22, and chapter 5 has 22. So they're all 22 verses or a multiple 22, which means it's based around the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So just like we're used to thinking 26, that's, that's the number that's 22 in Hebrew. And each line, well, each stanza begins with a new letter in the alphabet. So in chapter 1, you've got 22 stanzas, each of three lines apiece. And so the first line in each stanza starts uh, with the appropriate letter. So if we try to capture this in English, I'm just going to switch things around a little bit here to try to bring it out for the first couple verses. Uh, verse 1 might start like this. Alone sits the city that was full of people. And then you got the second line, the third line of verse 1. Verse 2, bitterly she weeps in the night. 
in the second line, then a third line. Verse 3, cast into exile is Judah because of affliction. Second line, third line. Get it? Right? So A, B, C. So you got the first line of each stanza, and then two that don't follow the acrostic, then the first line of the second stanza, and two. You'll get it. Bear with me. So that's chapter one. It goes through all 22 letters. Chapter two, exact same thing. 22 letters. The first line of each stanza is the acrostic, and then you got two lines in the first line. Chapter three levels it up. You'll notice in chapter three, uh, we've got it labeled with 66 verses. It's actually the same length as the other two, but each line gets a verse this time because each line follows the acrostic. So now instead of first line being A, and then the second line whatever, third line whatever, and then the next one being B, now it's every line's a part of the acrostic. So it goes A, 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 B, 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 C, 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 D, 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 all the way through 66 lines of acrostic goodness. Chapter 4 changes things up again. Seems like chapter 3 is a pinnacle and chapter 4 drops off. Uh, now there's still 22 stanzas, but each stanza is only two lines long. So the others were three lines long, now it's just two lines long. And every other line is part of the acrostic. So you got A, nothing. B, nothing. C, nothing. Then chapter 5 tapers off dramatically. Now 22 lines, but only one line per stanza. And it doesn't follow the acrostic at all just gives up on that. So there's still 22 lines, so he's still following the pattern, but just saying, you know, I'm done with the acrostic, we're just going to say whatever we want to say. So to recap, chapter 1, 66 lines, the first word of every third line is an acrostic. Chapter 2, 66 lines, same thing. Chapter 3, 66 lines, but every line is part of the acrostic. And then it drops off. Chapter 4, 44 lines, every other line is part of the acrostic. Chapter 5, 22 lines, no acrostic. Now what's going on here? Did he just get tired? Did he just kind of run out of words for grief beginning with A? You know, and, and finally chapter 4 is like, I can't do this anymore. No. There's a reason why he's doing this. It's part of the artistry of the book, part of the message of the book. And you've borne with me this far, just bear with me a little bit more. We're going to go a little more deeper so we can understand what is going on with this. So poems. Poems have a feature called meter. It's the rhythm of the poem. So different poems have different kinds of poems have different kinds of meters. You know this, you, like, you know the limerick meter, right? Uh, if I start to say a limerick, you could tell what's, what, what sounds right. It's eight, eight, five, five, eight. So eight beats in the first line, eight beats in the second, five in the third, five in the fourth, eight in the last. Okay, so I'll read you one. You can just count along in your head, make sure this is right. There once was a man with a beard who said, it is just as I feared. Two owls and a hen, four larks and a wren have all built their nest in my beard. That was for Jim. It's good. Eight, eight, five, five, eight. You get it. And you hear that rhythm, you think, limerick. I know it. I know it's, you don't have to tell me it's limerick. It follows that rhythm, that pattern. I get it. Poems have this, this sort of thing all over the place. Uh, Shakespearean stuff. It's iambic pentameter. I'm not going to give you examples on that because I don't understand it. But it has a meter. Hebrew poetry has meters too. And this book has a special meter. It's a meter that's used in funerals and in laments. The name of it is Kenah. You don't need to know that. But you do need to understand that the rhythm is three beats and then two beats. So in each line in, in this type of poetry, each line is divided into two parts and they're unequal. The first half has three beats. 
The second has two. So it goes one, two, three, one, two. One, two, three, one, two. And this unequal rhythm has the effect of throwing you off, of making you feel like you're somehow limping through the poem, like something's not right, like something's missing. You get these three strong beats at the beginning of the line, one, two, three, like you're going somewhere, like you're making progress. And you expect the same in the second half, but you only get two. It doesn't feel right. You feel off, like something's missing. And that's why it's used in funerals and in laments and times of mourning, because when you're grieving, it feels like something's missing. Something's off. Life isn't the way that you expect it to be. It's not working according to its proper rhythms. It's not one, two, three, one, two, three. It's one, two, three, one, two. There's something wrong. There's something missing. And in times of grief, you have these moments of progress where you feel like you're starting to get somewhere. Life is beginning to make sense again. One, two, three. But then the grief takes over, and you stumble, and doubt replaces hope, and you wonder, will this ever be made whole again? And so even when you're walking, it's three steps forward, two steps back. One, two, three. One, two. That's the rhythm of grief. That's the rhythm of this poem. One, two, three, one, two. It's, it's living with brokenness. It's where something's off, something's missing. You're, you're struggling for hope and then sliding in despair. And that rhythm is woven into almost every line of this book. Now, it's also written into the structure of the book as a whole. So this is where I tell you, this is genius-level poetry. Remember what I said about the structure of the book. There's five chapters. And the book starts with these three strong beats. The first three chapters, they're all the same length. They all seem like they're going somewhere. You've got 66 lines. They're following this acrostic pattern, and it's making progress because you get to chapter three, and you're in the super acrostic. Not just one every third line, but every line is part of this poem. And in chapter three, chapter three is the, chapter three is the only chapter really that people ever preach in Lamentations because it's the only one that's hopeful. Chapter 3 is the only place you find hope in this book. And these great verses that many people have memorized and cherished. Lamentations 3, 21, he says, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. What a tremendous promise. What a tremendous statement of hope. The, the author has arrived. He's got it. He's figured it out. One, two, three. I've achieved hope. I've found healing. But then chapter four and chapter five are two steps back. One, two, three, one, two. The poems get shorter. Chapter four drops now to 44 verses, and the acrostic is sporadic, every other verse. Chapter five is just one line apiece. And we've given up the acrostic completely, and the content of the passage follows along. Look how the book ends. Chapter 5, verse 20. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us, and you remain exceedingly angry with us. doesn't sound like the same guy who wrote chapter 3. 
Well, that's how it works. That's the rhythm of grief. You make progress. One, two, three, and then you fall back. One, two. That's how it feels to go through a great tragedy. You begin to heal. You begin to feel like you're getting somewhere. You're making progress. I will trust in God. He is faithful. I can believe in him. And then you stumble. The wound's still there. The brokenness never goes away. God, are you forsaking me? Are you still angry? Why do I feel like this? And so the whole book, the whole book from the very lines and the rhythms of the poetry to the structure of the whole thing is put together artfully, poetically, skillfully to communicate this idea, tragedy leaves you broken. The whole thing is designed to give you a feeling of this gaping wound that life is not one, two, three, one, two, three. That's what life is like for people who have never experienced trauma. That's, that's life for people who have never gone through hard times. You just think, well, you work your plan, you make your plan, you work your plan, everything works out. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. But when you've suffered, when you've experienced tragedy, it doesn't work like that anymore. It's one, two, three, one, two. There's always something wrong. There's always something missing. You never know if it's going to work out the way you want it to. You can have those moments of hope where you're trusting in God, and then you slide back and you say, but is this going to be like that time when you didn't show up? So this is poetry. This is poetry of the highest order. It doesn't rhyme, but it does move us. It is skillfully and artfully designed to connect with us on an emotional level and to help us work through our feelings. And the more we dig into this book, the more we understand these poems and let them shape us, the more we will be moved and helped emotionally by these words. So I think this is why God responded to tragedy with art. Because he knows that we are not just brains on a stick. We're not just walking around. We're not just machines that need logical, well-reasoned answers. We are emotional creatures. And we don't just need to be taught the truth. We need to feel the truth. We need to be moved by it. And that's what Lamentations does. It moves us. It's inspired art that God has given to you and to me help us to deal with the complex reality of living in a fallen world and have all these overwhelming emotions that come when we experience great tragedy. So in light of the fact that God gave art in response to tragedy, my application is simple today. In times of tragedy, don't neglect art. Don't neglect it. Don't think it's worthless. Don't despise it. When the Jews had the greatest tragedy in their history up to that time, God gave them poems. He gave them art because he knew in their time of grief they needed more than answers. They needed more than logic, more than precision. They needed a profound emotional experience. And that's what art gives us. So I urge you not to neglect art, this beautiful gift from God. Times of tragedy, we want answers, but sometimes what we need is an emotional experience that only art can give. And when I say art, I mean, first of all, let's start with the Bible. Let's start with this inspired art, this beautiful, wonderful poetry that God has given us. 
And so we're going to spend time in Lamentations together. But it's more than that. Because God has also given us the good gifts of music and of uh, the visual arts and performing arts and books and other non-inspired poetry that's still edifying and good. Don't neglect that in your times of tragedy. For me, music is the art form that connects most deeply. Uh, I never read just poetry. Right? I don't have any books of poems or things. I don't, I don't know if anybody does that anymore. But I have been shaped by my favorite poets. They're musicians. So Andrew, for me, Andrew Peterson, Sarah Groves, uh, Switchfoot. Uh, it's a Christian band. Um, they're my poets. And you probably have yours. But their poetry has moved me. It's helped me through tragedies, big and small in my life. It's shaped me. Do you have poets? Do you have people that, that you're artists in your life that are helping you and shaping you? I mean, who do you turn to to help you make sense of the world emotionally? It might be music for you. It might be novels. It might be film or dance or photography or painting. It's all sorts of art in the world that God has given us. Don't neglect it. God invented art, and he did it because we are emotional creatures who need what only art can give. Sometimes you don't just need facts, you need feelings. Of course, and I'll close with this, of course, there's good art and there's bad art. So be discerning. Start with the Bible, get saturated in the Bible, have a biblical worldview, make that part of you so you can recognize what's good and what's bad. But then take in art. You know, start with, with art created by people who are also Bible-saturated. That's going to be the best stuff, right? Because they've got the truth. They know, how, they know the true God. But don't limit yourself even to there. Because of God's common grace, there is lots of great art in the world made by Christians and non-Christians alike. And non-Christian art can be a real blessing if we take it in with discernment. But whatever you do, don't say, poetry. Who needs that? We do. Evidently, God thought that we needed it because after the greatest tragedy his people had ever seen, he gave them poems. And in a world as tragic and broken as ours, we would be fools to neglect that gift. Let's pray. Father, thank you for art. Thank you for poetry. Thank you for your word that shapes us and moves us. You did not just give us a textbook with answers. You gave us poems and stories and things that move our hearts emotionally because we are more than heads. We're also hearts. So, Father, I would pray for us all that you would give us the, the right poems, the right songs, the right stories, the right movies, the right art at the right time to help draw our affections to you and to make sense of this world. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.